Welcome to episode 30 of History of the Marine Corps. A former ally becomes an enemy. Our last episode completed the series about the American Revolution and included some statistics about the war. I left out one statistic during the last episode. The number of Marines who were killed or wounded in action. Pretty ridiculous thing to leave out considering this is a podcast about the Marine Corps. But during the American Revolution, about 131 officers held Continental Marine Commissions. Enlisted numbers aren't exact, but the numbers did not exceed 2,000. The number of Marines who were killed in action during this war is 49, and the number wounded in action is 70. These numbers seem small, but depending on manpower estimates, this equates to about a 5-8% to loss. Now this episode introduces America's next war, and the first official war the United States fought as an independent nation. The Quasi-War was an undeclared war fought against one of our greatest allies during our fight for independence, the French. As with the American Revolution, I'll take a couple of episodes to put the war into context. We'll take a look at our relationship with France after the Revolution, and some events that changed our relationship. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The years following the American Revolution weren't as peaceful as most make it out to be. We won our independence but we were now dealing with 13 individual governments. The Articles of Confederation were the United States' initial attempt at a constitution. It tried to establish the functions of a national government by creating a Congress. But Congress had minimal authority, and the states feared that they would lose their power to a central government. Without support for the new governing document, the country could never evolve. George Washington didn't have faith in the Articles of Confederation. He once wrote a friend, I do not believe we can exist as a nation unless there is a central government which will rule all the nation, just as a state government rules each state. He wasn't alone, and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison shared this thought. The United States just went through a major war. It was hesitant to turn over the power they fought so hard for to another central authority. But having each state serve as an independent nation had apparent problems. Every state had its army. Nine states had their own navy. They used these forces to protect themselves from each other. In one example, Virginia threatened to seize other states' ships if they did not pay taxes. The 1780s were a hard time for the new country and many people thought anarchy was in the air. Things were disorganized, and the United States needed to solve a whole new set of problems. For example, the need for establishing a national currency. The American dollar did exist, but everyone thought it was worthless. The value of the dollar was different everywhere. I'm not talking about other nations. It was valued differently in each state. The dollar was four times as valuable in South Carolina as opposed to New York. The currency from different countries was widely accepted, so no one cared that the dollar wasn't doing well. After accepting the presidency in 1789, 
George Washington appointed Alexander Hamilton as a Secretary of Treasury. The United States had a debt of $4.5 million, and Hamilton's plan to address this debt was to focus on commercial growth. The Federalist Party led this effort and eventually turned into the face of the trading economy. This demand led to a time where the merchant was one of the most critical roles in the world. International trade was especially important for the United States. We didn't have a navy, and trading internationally was the United States' only presence overseas. Before the American Revolution, the colonies had a great trading relationship with Great Britain. Back in 1778, the French foreign minister supported the idea of helping the United States against England, arguing that American independence would negatively impact the relationship with British trade. In addition to Britain's restrictive trade policy, he thought America's freedom would end the relationship with Britain. He also assumed that Americans would be grateful to France for their help with the war, which would increase trading. But this wasn't the case. In 1789, British exports were higher than they were before the Revolution. French exports rose as well, but they were nowhere near the levels of Great Britain. Britain's success wasn't something planned by the United States, and most of the problems with international trade from France came from their end. The Farmers General in France had a monopoly on the tobacco industry and discouraged tobacco from America. They also tried to get rid of their inferior products to the United States, which either never sold or sold at a substantial loss. Americans didn't have faith in French products, and the French didn't have an interest in American products. This generated a lot of opinions from the French. They thought that Americans had terrible business ethics. They also assumed that Americans weren't grateful for France's assistance during the Revolution, but neither of those two assumptions were true. Financially, France was going through a pretty rough time. They just spent 80 million pounds to support America's independence against Great Britain. Now, I'm not saying the French did it only out of the goodness of their heart. They had other reasons for supporting America's independence. For one, France anticipated they would go to war with Great Britain again. Instead of the United States fighting alongside Britain, they preferred the new country to side with them. But regardless of their reasoning, they had tremendous support from their citizens. America believed in freedom, equality, and tolerance. Nowadays, you hear a lot of people criticizing these early beliefs and claiming hypocrisy from our founding fathers. But regardless of your stance, the reality is that this was a massive steps for the human rights movement. Many French citizens praised America's fight. Anne-Robert Jacques Turgot, a French economist and statesman, gave America kudos for the revolution. He stated, It is impossible not to hope that these people may attain the prosperity of which they are susceptible. They are the hope of the human race. They may well become its model. America's independence meant more to French citizens than being free from Great Britain. It was a fight about inalienable rights. To be fair, most of their opinion was taken from American pamphlets, the Bill of Rights, and other documents coming from the states. Still, some of the material that got the most attention were the Articles of Confederation, State Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence. A French magazine published an editorial that said, These laws seem to be the finest monuments of human wisdom.
they constitute the purest democracy which has ever existed. They already appear to be achieving the happiness of the people who have adopted them, and they will forever constitute the glory of the virtuous men who conceived them. France supported America secretly through the American diplomats in Paris, but formally showed their support through the Treaty Alliance of 1778. Benjamin Franklin, Silas Dean, and Arthur Lee were the American representatives living in Paris. They signed the document on behalf of the United States. The treaty was a fair document between the two nations. France had the opportunity to take advantage of the United States. Many historians believe that the United States would have lost the war without help from France, and I agree with this opinion. Still, the French entered into this agreement as if we were equals. France and the United States signed the two treaties on February 6, 1778. The Treaty of Alliance and the Treaty of Amity and Commerce both played a big part in the quasi-war with France. The Treaty of Alliance called for mutual defense in case France or the other colonies were attacked by the British. One of the clauses in the treaty specified that neither country could seek a separate peace agreement with Britain. The Treaty of Amity and Commerce recognized the United States as an independent nation and promoted trade and commercial ties between the two countries. The partnership and civility between France and the United States between the end of the American Revolution in 1783 until the French Revolution in 1789 never was stronger. From a political perspective and citizen perspective, both countries had tremendous respect for each other. The partnership also opened up the opportunity for information to flow freely between the United States and countries other than Great Britain. Before the war, the French received information about America through Great Britain, but that news was limited. Now the barrier was removed. The French were receiving an avalanche of data from the States. Americans also started to show up in France. Tourists, businessmen, politicians, artists, and every other profession you could think of strolled the streets of Paris. Much of this success is arguably credited to two founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Franklin was living in Paris during the American Revolution. He made significant efforts to create a favorable American picture for the French population. Franklin enjoyed the spotlight and was considered a public hero by Jefferson. But while Franklin was concerned with creating a flattering picture of America, Jefferson's goal was to make sure that image was accurate. The English media was pushing articles about political chaos in the United States. Jefferson challenged these reports by publishing articles in French newspapers and rejecting the British press. These two men provided the French population some of the best literature and insight on America's policies and the current state of the new nation. In 1789, France was facing bankruptcy, partly because of the American Revolution. Combined with two kings who loved to spend money, 20 years of bad harvests, droughts, livestock disease, and continuously rising bread prices, the commoners had enough. France dealt with these issues just like any other country, and they raised taxes. Unfortunately, the only people taxed in France were the commoners. The third estate was mainly the working class in France. They made up 98% of the population, however the clergy and the nobility of the country could still outvote them. French citizens were rightfully angry about their lack of rights. 
They were also mad about paying all of the taxes, while the noble class and clergy paid none. As a result, they protested by rioting, looting, and going on strike. Tensions would escalate, and on July 14th, rioters stormed the Bastille. This attack was the start of the French Revolution, and this date is still celebrated by the French today. Three weeks later, the French adopted the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. France would spend the next couple of years figuring out their constitution, how to make political decisions, and limiting power of the king. In 1792, a group of extremists stormed the king's residence and arrested him. He was sentenced to death by guillotine on January 21, 1793. It was not a good time to be living in France, and there was internal fighting for control of the nation. The new power tried to get rid of Christianity, decided to adopt the new calendar, and was responsible for the reign of terror, which over 17,000 suspected people against the revolution were executed. Ironically, most of the executions were carried out by the Committee of Public Safety. He was executed a year later. The French Revolution kicked off the French Revolutionary Wars. In 1791, the Declaration of Pilnitz was a joint declaration between Austria and Prussia, expressing concern about the developments in France and support for the king. This declaration wasn't taken lightly by the French. In April 1792, France responded by invading the Austrian Netherlands. The current French administration thought it was their duty to free the world from monarchs. The country was under the control of the Girondin leader, Jacques-Pierre Brousseau, who was previously a journalist and had absolutely no experience with government administration. Brousseau stated, We will not be satisfied until Europe, all Europe, is aflame. France had been called to lead a gigantic revolution and a worldwide uprising to liberate the oppressed peoples of the world. All Europe, as far as Moscow, will be Gallicized, communized, and Jacobinized. Brousseau reinstated an old policy of self-enrichment from war. Now soldiers and sailors can loot property and keep any valuables found during their plunder. This rule change completely reshaped the landscape, and now the poor were profiting from war and so was the French government, which meant they had the funds to build a stronger army and navy. However, the one thing that money couldn't fix was famine. Poor harvests implied there was little to do about growing food, which brings us back to the United States. Brousseau planned to have the United States support the country with food to help end the famine. Americans showed great compassion for the French Revolution. How could they not? America just finished a war fighting for the same rights. The French called for the United States to attack the British and Spanish colonies in North America. Attacking European citizens in North America would force Britain to send military forces across the sea, lowering their presence in Europe. French naval forces in the West Indies planned to sail to the United States, team up with the Americans, and invade Florida, Louisiana, and Canada. Ultimately, this partnership would invade Mexico and Peru to take over Spanish gold and silver mines. America didn't want anything to do with this war. Not only were we in debt from the American Revolution, but we didn't have a military. The United States wanted to remain neutral in the war going on in Europe. The French had a problem with this stance, 
and thought the United States had a duty to provide support under the Franco-American Treaty of 1788. The treaty promised mutual military assistance in case fighting should break out between French and British forces. Still, the new United States government did not agree. In 1793, George Washington, who was now the first president of the United States, issued the Neutrality Proclamation. In short, the purpose of this document was to keep America from being drawn into a war between Britain and France. In 1795, the United States signed Jay's Treaty, which regulated relationships between America and Britain. The purpose of this treaty was to tie up loose ends in the 1783 Treaty of Paris. One of those issues included British soldiers still in America. Britain still had forts sprinkled throughout North America, and the fortifications were manned with British soldiers on American soil. Trading routes were significant as well. America wanted to expand its trade and open up routes with the British West Indies. Jay's treaty caused a lot of controversy in America. It was an important political issue that was unpopular with the American public and influenced the election of our second president. This debate is the first time both political parties were divided and the first party system was used for Senate approval. The Democratic-Republican Party disagreed with the treaty. They didn't want to support Great Britain. We just fought a war for our freedom. However, George Washington agreed with the Federalist, and he decided that the best route was to sign this treaty. Washington's decision swayed the Senate's opinion. Among other things, Britain agreed to leave the fort and reimburse the United States for confiscated property. Still, the biggest win was the most favored nation status, which was an exclusive relationship between Great Britain and the United States that provided the best trade terms and significantly improved trade between the two countries. This treaty was the straw that broke the camel's back. France interpreted the agreement as a violation of the Treaty of Amity and Commerce between them and the United States. France supported America's fight for independence at the expense of their men, supplies, and money. They also had a few treaties with the United States in place that secured the alliance between the two countries. They felt betrayed, and that betrayal turned into resentment. At the time, it was routine for a naval power to seize the ships of neutral nations that traded with their enemies. Since the United States issued the Neutrality Proclamation, and now that the Jays Treaty was signed, French privateers were authorized by their government to raid American commerce vessels. Most of the ships were captured in the Caribbean and sold for profit. In 1795 alone, French cruisers captured 316 American ships. In February 1797, the United States Secretary of State made a detailed list of complaints about France's actions. He claimed that stealing American ships, disrupting trade, and mistreating American sailors was a clear violation of treaties between France and the United States. The French weren't only taking vessels and property. There were a few examples of Americans being tortured and fired upon by French ships. In March 1797, a French armed brig captured the Cincinnatus out of Baltimore. French sailors tortured the American captain with thumbscrews as an attempt to force him to declare his cargo as the property of England. He resisted the tortures, and he never claimed the property belonged to the British. 
The French eventually let him go, but they stole most of his property in the process. France disagreed and claimed the confiscation was fair because of the injuries suffered from the United States abandoning the principle of free ships, free goods outlined in the Treaty of Amity and Commerce. Free ships, free goods meant that if cargo in a ship belonged to a neutral country and didn't have illegal or prohibited items for war, they could not be captured. France argued that the definition of contraband changed in Jay's treaty. Both France and the United States agreed to support the free ships, free goods principle with the 1778 treaty. Now the American government violated its promise. The French's opinion on Americans started to change, and vice versa in the States. Anti-Americanism began to grow in France, and many French believed that America betrayed them. Americans began to loathe the French for their behavior. At this time, George Washington was finishing up his term as president, and there was about to be a change in power with John Adams taking the reins. Adams was not in favor of going to war, but understood this outcome could be inevitable. Join us for our next episode, where we'll take a look at how Adams deals with this situation, including a letter to the Secretary of War, James McHenry, asking for an estimate of the defensive forces needed to shield the country from invasion. Next week, we'll take a look at how President Adams handles this event, opinions of the Federalist and Democratic Republican Party, as well as the Secretary of War's response to what is actually needed to fight this battle. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.